Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is precious and true. Fill our hearts during this meditation, this message, with your word. Lead us, guide us on to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the question. What is your source of authority? What's your bedrock of truth? Now, it's a question, believe it or not, that's not just for a message. It is the question of our age. What's the source of authority? What is the bedrock of truth? We certainly can't find it in politicians, can we? No, I don't think so. Or media, or big tech. Even science has become so politicized that we don't, most of us, don't trust parts of that anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm qualifying, right? I know water still boils at a certain temperature. I trust that science. But there are other things that you kind of go, hmm, I don't know about that. So what is your authority? What's the bedrock of your truth? In our day and age, it's mostly our thoughts and our opinions, our feelings. Our feelings are what's true, and as our feelings change, well, then truth just changes with that. This is an age-old question, you understand. It's not just for our day and age. It is an age-old question, and it does pertain to our faith. Because what is the authority in, in all matters of your life and faith? See, this is one of the questions that was at the heart of Reformation. A little over 500 years ago, 505 years ago, tomorrow to be exact, there was a fellow named Martin Luther, an obscure monk who was the uh, chair of theology at the University of Wittenberg. He was a studious man, a studious monk, studied scripture quite a bit. Some people think he even had a photographic memory. He knew scripture that well. And you see, he was greatly troubled by what was going on within the Catholic Church. Let me just give you a little bit of a thumbnail of one of the issues. So the Catholic Church believes that when you die, you don't go directly to heaven Uh, those who are saved go first to purgatory. Now, purgatory is not a nice place. It's actually very similar to hell. But whereas hell is for an eternity, purgatory is just for a time being. It is where you are purified, where your sins are purged, so to speak. So you are made clean before going to heaven. Now, It varies how long you could be in purgatory. You could be in purgatory for, I don't know, 500 years, 1,000 years, 10,000s of years, and depending on who you are, I suppose, maybe tens of thousands of years. But the thought was, well, is there a way I can shave some time off in purgatory? Right? I mean, that's the natural human inclination. And so what if I went on a crusade to the Holy Land I mean, that's fighting the good fight, isn't it? 
there should be some reward for fighting that good fight. And indeed, there was a reward. It's called an indulgence. An indulgence basically removes the time needed to be spent in purgatory. And the bigger your deed, the more time you would get off. But not everybody could go on a crusade. I mean, it was really only the young or even middle-aged men, I suppose, at best, could go on a crusade. But here's the thing. What if what if I sponsored some people to grow on a crusade? Or what if I gave some money for building a cathedral? Or something else like that? Wouldn't that be beneficial as well? Wouldn't that be worth an indulgence? And indeed, the Pope said so. In fact, in 1476, the Pope made a decree that not only can you buy indulgences for yourself, but you can buy them for your family members as well. Because, you, I mean, you love your Aunt Polly, don't you? You don't want her to spend more time in purgatory than necessary. Okay? So, this, and there's more to it than that, but I'm giving you a thumbnail sketch. This is what was going on with indulgences, purgatory, and the Catholic Church, and this bothered Martin Luther. Oh, and by the way, the Catholic Church still does indulgences. You don't buy them, but they still give them. Um, But it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. Indulgences, in a way, are very popular in prosperity preaching. So a prosperity preaching says, if you give this ministry $1,000, God will give it back tenfold. Isn't that kind of in the same category of indulgences? And does, does God really need your money? Can you buy off God? No. You get the heart of this though, right? So this is what bothered Martin Luther. And he took a look at this and he said, you know what, I can't even find purgatory and I certainly can't find indulgences in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Scripture goes against both of those things. So the question is, I mean, he was a faithful Catholic monk. The question is, what's the source of authority? Is it the Pope or the church councils or the priest or the pastor? Are those above Scripture or is Scripture alone our source of authority? So what he did on October 31st, All Saints Day Eve, November 1st is All Saints Day, he pounded 95 theses or statements, statements, 95 of them on the church door. This was the common practice because there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't email, you know, like that. You just pounded it on the door. This sparked the Reformation. So today, and for the next two Sundays, we're going to spend some time in the Reformation. And there were a lot of things that came out of it. We're going to just focus on three things. Today is Scripture alone. Next week is faith alone. And then the following week is Christ alone. And the alone part is very important here. Now, I want to point out here, this is not about Martin Luther. 
I'm going to give history about what's going on, but it's not about Martin Luther. It's not we're, we're, going to, we're not going to glorify him because he would say above all other people that he is a sinner saved by grace like everybody else. Nor is it saying we're going to lift up Lutheranism because Martin Luther, by the way, would have been aghast that there's a church, a denomination called Lutheran. He was a Christian first and foremost. So this is about Scripture alone. This is about faith alone. And this ultimately is about Jesus Christ alone. So we are going to get into that. And how do we do that? We do it with God's Word. So we're going to go to God's Word today. We're going to be in 2 Timothy. And it's really, it's, it's a two-part sermon, believe it or not. It's, first of all, the attack and rejection of God's Word. And then it is that God's Word stands forever. All right? So we're going to start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. Amen is true. As Paul was writing, uh, to, or as Steve had mentioned, Paul... Timothy was Paul's protege, okay? Timothy was Paul's protege. And he was in the town, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most important towns, cities, in that era, okay? It was, an, it was a lot of commerce went through there, port city. It was also a lot of pagan influence. There was a lot of hostility towards Christians, but there was also a person who is, had been excommunicated from the church in Ephesus. He was a false teacher, and even though he had been excommunicated, he was still within the church, you know, trying to spread his insidious false teaching. And so one of the things that we have to be aware of in the days of difficulty, is that a lot of false teaching isn't from outside the church. A lot of it comes from within the church. This is really important. The greatest danger is actually not outside the church. The greatest danger is what is within the church. Because there's a lack of spiritual discernment among the body of Christ, we find that some of the worst false teachings come from within the church. If you would like to do some research on this, this summer for our Bible study, we did kind of a potpourri, hey pastor, I have a question. They're all on YouTube. They're available for you to watch. Uh, We did three weeks on the Nicene Creed and all of the heresies that the Nicene Creed was combating. But we also did a couple weeks on why we don't use certain songs from certain churches like Bethel Church in Redding, California, or Hillsong, or Elevation Church, Steve Furtick's church. We don't use these because maybe on the outside they look nice. You know, like when you try to choose a watermelon at the store, like it looks good, bring it home, and it's like, oh man, it's just bad on the inside, and you got to just throw it all away. So there are reasons why we don't do that. We 
like Paul told Timothy, we need to be alert. We need to be vigilant. We need, as a body, to have spiritual discernment, which means we actually do judge on things, but we are to judge rightly, not hypocritically. But we need to be vigilant about all of these things. So, Paul then goes into a list. He really lays it on about what we should be aware of. And I'm just going to read it. You've got part of it on the screen here. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. You know, when you read this list, when you hear this list, doesn't it sound like it was written yesterday? It does, doesn't it? And the reason for that is because even though we have changed in technology, morality hasn't changed in human beings. Sin still abounds. So Paul says, avoid such people. Now, we've talked about this before. Does it mean you can't say hi to them? You can't have a conversation? No, you can say hi. You can have a conversation with them. But you should not have them be part of the body, lest they infect the body. You can't have somebody who's a false teacher like that, or somebody doing such things, and put them in the pulpit, or put them in a leadership position within the church. We should be diligent, we should be vigilant, we should have spiritual discernment on such things. As Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole. A little bit of least yeast infects the whole body. Now he goes on here. He says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now this is not a commentary on all women. Okay? Not at all. In fact, think about all of the scams in our day and age that prey on men and women. Unfortunately, Joy Church email and our personal email somehow got on a list, and we're getting all things about how many, how many things we've won. All we have to do is go to this website, right? If you see that, right, just delete them. If you ever get an email from me, supposedly me, that says, urgent, please contact me, and then it says, I'm in a meeting, uh, please email me, that's a scam. Those are things that spoof other people. So you see scams all the time, right? And they prey on our desires, our fears, our weaknesses, False teachers do the exact same thing. That's really what he's talking about here. Back in Paul's day, 
there was the practice of wandering so-called religious men that it would ingratiate themselves with the women. We would call them con men in our day and age. One commentator, Paul Kretzman, says this. He pictures them as smooth, slick-talking religious agents with ingratiating, clinging methods, insidiously introducing themselves, often as fatherly confessor brothers, with a high grade of spiritual and great sanctity, actually taking such women captive, body and soul, women were their special prey. You got the idea, right? This happens in this day and age as well. You see, these women actually represent people who dabble in their faith, who like to have spiritual conversations that sound nice, but really aren't grounded in, the, in Scripture, aren't grounded in God's Word or God's truth. And there are a lot of people who dabble. They say, you know, I'm, I, I go to church, but they dabble in all of this religious, spiritual conversation. And yeah, okay, I've got a Bible, and I don't really don't read it, but have you read The Shack? Or have you read The Da Vinci Code? Or have you read something else which points to a different Jesus than Scripture? This would be an example of people who dabble in those spiritual conversations. And Paul says this, that always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These are people who attack, who reject God's word. So what are we to do then? What are we to do? Well, let's address this. Verse 14 and 15. But as for you, continuing in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You've heard the phrase, go along to get along, right? Yes? Okay, thank you. I wasn't making, everybody's like, just going along with it. Okay, you said it, I'll just go along with it. But there's the, (laughs) that was just so funny. There's peer pressure, isn't there? Just go with the flow. Go with what everybody else is doing. But Paul says to Timothy, but you, don't do that. And he goes on to say, you've learned from me. You've modeled what I've been modeling. He, in his first letter, even says that you were raised in faith by your mother and grandmother. So it is good for you that you model this. But he does not say that Paul or his mother or his grandmother are the authority in their lives. He doesn't say that. He says it is Scripture that is the authority in in his life. That's the message that he's really getting across. He's saying these sacred writings, you should Follow them above all things. And when I say sacred writings, that's just another way to say Scripture. Now, I've gone on record before, and I will go on record again this morning. 
that you should follow me only as I am faithful to Scripture. Period. You should be, and the only way you know that is if you actually study Scripture. See, we're all supposed to be like the Bereans. The Bereans. Acts chapter 17. They listened to Paul. And then they checked Scripture. It says this, Now these Jews were more noble than, the, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they, they said, okay, we heard what Paul was just preaching. Does that correspond with Scripture, with the sacred writings? So you and I are all to be like the Bereans, and if you don't know Scripture, you will not have spiritual discernment. Those two go hand in hand. So the training that we receive from this is for our own benefit. See, God didn't have to give us his word for his own sake. He gave us his word for our sake. He gave us his word. Whoops. Apparently I don't have that slide. Okay. It says, uh, he gave us this word for this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's talk about this. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So a technical word for it is plenary, which just means complete in every respect. So God's word is complete in every respect. That would mean history, chronology, archaeology, geography, complete in every respect. So God's word is that. And it also says it is breathed out by God. Actually, that simply means that it comes directly from God himself. It is not just man-made or man-conceived. It comes from God. Now there's a couple of scripture references uh, regarding that. The first one is from Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we say that Scripture is breathed out by God, it has a very full 
very important meaning. It means that the Old and New Testament is God's verbal word. If you don't believe that, just go to our gospel reading today. Most of you have uh, at least heard about this, that three times Satan tempted Jesus, right? We had that in our gospel reading. The first is a physical temptation. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Then there's actually two spiritual temptations. One is to make God prove himself, and the other is to forsake God altogether. Then the devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, even the devil knows Scripture, although he will twist the context. Now the other one, forsaking God altogether. And again, the devil took them to a very high mountain and showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So what did Jesus do? He said, okay, devil, let's talk this over. Let's look at your philosophical foundation that you have regarding this. I'd like to just parse a couple words on this. Let's just have a... He didn't do any of that, right? How did he respond? He said, it is written. That's how he responded. It is written. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then he said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It is written. And he doesn't mean that it was written a long time ago, so I'm just kind of remembering it. I'm just trying to follow some old directions. He's saying, it is written. It stands there in the past. It stands in the present. It stands forever God's word endures forever. It had meaning in the past. It has meaning in the present. It has meaning in the future. You see, Jesus knew that the written word of Scripture was God's word. And that God's word has, fi- has authority over everything. Let that sink in. That God's word has authority over everything. Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, people want to continually try to beat God's word to death. But they can't. His word stands forever. There's a poem that I'd like to read to you. 
It's called the anvil of God's word, and it's not long. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn and beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, I said, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, he said. Then with a twinkling of the eye, the anvil wears the hammer out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics blow have beat upon. Yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammer's gone. You see, God's word endures forever. And God's word is for your benefit. It says this here. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, most people will read that and kind of go, yep, that sounds good. But when push comes to shove and your sin is called out, most people then rebel against God's word or they try to change God's word. See, you and I generally have an intellectual assent to all of this. Yeah, God's word. Scripture, God's word. And then we live our lives. And somehow we separate our faith and our life, but how can you do that? You really can't. Our faith and life must go hand in hand. And so God's word given to us is good for us to learn from, to grow in knowledge and love of Jesus. It's good for reproof, which is a rebuke. If you were here a couple weeks ago, remember the prophet uh, Nathan rebuked King David to bring out his sin. God's word is good for that. God's word is for correction. God's word is for us to learn and be trained up in his righteousness. See, if you're living a life, you say you're a follower of Jesus, but your life doesn't look anything different than 5, 10, 20 years ago, I would say, are you following Jesus? Are you following his word? And see, when you actually follow his word, then you are moved to do good works according to him. This is how it works, folks. It's not complicated, is it? The only thing that really makes it complicated is our sin. Oh yeah, God's word. Yeah. But it's okay that I do that. According to what standard? So, this is what we have before us today. Today. This is the choice that each and every generation, each and every person here must make. Is Scripture alone the source of authority for Christian life and faith, for your life and faith? Yes or no? That's the question. Yes or no? This day, where do 
you stand this day, this moment, going forward. You see, Luther was put on trial because of his stand for Scripture. He was under the sentence of excommunication. He was under a sentence of death. He was brought before a trial, and he said, in part, he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Where do you stand? Amen.